Well, good morning, church. Um, after watching a video like that, um, you can become keenly aware of just what it took to ensure that it is finished. And I am aware that the only reason we can gather here this morning and the only reason that I can presume to come to God's word and to teach is because it is finished. And the only reason that any of us can presume to come as sinners to a holy God and receive salvation is because it is finished. That is the... uh, the phrase that we're going to explore this morning. Uh, so as I uh, read a, a little bit out of a out of a book called Radical Together by David Platt, the guy who who kind of um, is the mastermind behind um, Secret Church. Some of you know Secret Church, the church at Brook Hills in Birmingham, Alabama. Um, as I read, I would invite you to turn to uh, two passages. The first is John 19. They'll be up on the screen. I, I do invite you to turn, though, something special about following along in your own copy of God's Word. John chapter 19 and Hebrews chapter 10. So as I'm reading, that'll give you a, a chance to, to head that way. But I'm going to be talking about this idea. What does it mean? You know, I, could, I, could, I suppose I could ask you, do you believe that it is finished? Do you believe, Christian, that it is finished? And I could probably get some hearty amens. But perhaps a question that we must ask before, do we believe that it is finished, is what does it mean it is finished? What exactly does that mean? So that's where John chapter 19 comes in, where Jesus actually says those words as as he uh, dies on the cross. And then in Hebrews 10... Later, we'll expand on that. I'm going to read a little, uh, just a little excerpt out of a book. Uh, if you will, just kind of listen. Imagine a man I'll call Andy. A few years ago, Andy professed faith in Christ. Since that day, Andy has always espoused salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. According to Andy, his actions have nothing to do with his salvation. And unfortunately, this is evident in his life. Sure, he goes to church and attends his small group, but Christ is not clear in his character or his care for others. And he turns a blind eye to the lost, even those who have never heard of Christ. And he turns a deaf ear to the cries of the poor, even those who are among his family in Christ. Though he, um, though he boldly claims belief in the gospel, there is no fruit of faith in his life beyond the religious routine of cultural Christianity. Or imagine Ashley. All her life, she's been in the church. In fact, she's been baptized four times. She listens to a sermon after sermon. She listens to sermon after sermon and has been in a study after study where she has learned what she needs to do for God. She wants to please God and she works hard at putting Christianity into action. Yet she never feels as if she has done enough. And she is never sure of her salvation. Trying to live out the gospel is wearing Ashley out. Both Ashley and Andy attend the church at Brook Hills, and I'm guessing they attend your church as well. 
Andy thinks his work has nothing to do with salvation. And Ashley thinks work has everything to do with salvation. Both are confused. Both are wrong. And until they get a right understanding of the gospel, they will never be a part of accomplishing the purpose of God. Hard words, very true words, and it is this tension that we're going to explore this morning, this tension between not working for salvation, but yes, working out salvation. How are we as Christians to find balance? Because I can guarantee you one thing, we are very, very good at running to extremes. Isn't there safety in that? Don't we feel safe when we run to an extreme? If we can just run to as far as we can get to one side of the of the uh, of the seesaw, then we feel safe because I tell you what, I, I know what camp I'm in. When I'm on the extreme, I can tell you exactly which camp I'm in. But oh, there's a little bit more danger in in trying to manage this this balance. So the temptation is to run to either live this libertine life where Works has absolutely nothing to do with salvation. Oh, I'm saved by grace now. Live like the world. Or we believe somehow that we can work to attain our salvation. So, if you will glance down to hopefully where you have at least one finger in John chapter 19. Start in verse 23. We're going to read along. This is uh, dealing with the crucifixion of Christ and perhaps the, the perhaps the last words that he says recorded in John was it is finished. Verse 23, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier. Also his tunic, but the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill what the scripture said. They divided my garments among them and for my clothes they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. Verse 25. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. Verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, he said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So what does it mean? It is finished. Was Jesus basically saying, well, you know, I was God and I used to sit on a throne, but for 33 years I humbled myself and I humbled myself and and lived among these dirty sinners. But, hey, I'm glad I'm I'm glad I'm dying because now it's finished. Don't have to do this anymore. Don't have to walk among these people anymore. It's finished. Is that what he was saying? Or was he saying, you know, I knew this moment was coming and I was, uh, you know, going to be scourged and crucified, which was portrayed in a somewhat G-rated version by the video. And it's painful. And, and, you know, they they offered me this this kind of this uh, sedative. I didn't take it. 
This has been very painful these past 12 hours or so, or 24, or depending on if you're talking about physical pain or emotional pain. He sweated bullets in the garden, sweated bullets of blood. But now, finally, I can die and I can be put out of my misery and it's finished. Is that what he was talking about? Flip over to Hebrews 10 and we're going to explore this. I'm going to read the first 11 verses. I ask you to follow along. Hebrews chapter 10. The author of Hebrews is writing to a, uh, uh, most likely a group of Jewish Christians, in other words, people who had converted to Christianity, but they also knew the law. So we have a lot of, a lot of Old Testament references in Hebrews because the people would have understood um, exactly what the, uh, the author was uh, saying when he would reference these Old Testament scriptures. So follow along with me, starting in verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, Instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered year after year, make perfect those who draw near. Sacrifices can't make perfect. Hmm. Verse 2, otherwise they would have... Uh, would they not have been ceased to have been offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Sacrifices don't do any good. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. But I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written in the scroll of the book. Verse eight, when he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ once for all. And every priest, don't miss this, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. It's an interesting passage of Scripture. These first four verses, uh, it says the sin has but a shadow of the things to come. It, uh, these sacrifices cannot take away sins. So we're confronted uh, with the fact, the reality is that the Old Testament law, the sacrifices, did not save. Did not have the power to save. The, the sacrifices didn't have these power. Uh, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. For the one with a Jewish mind reading this, if you were confronted with these facts for the first time, I imagine it would be uh, earth shattering. If you just realize this, you come to this realization that I am involved in a system uh, that, that we, we sacrifice animals every day, but... They don't do any good. 
in reference to sin. Now, yes, they they do provide a picture for us. They provide a, a picture foretelling the coming Christ who will have to die. It shows us that in order for sin to be reconciled, something must die. But these sacrifices don't do it. These sacrifices don't cut it. So we are in a pickle. You may say, what a tragedy. These Hebrews took this picture of God and turned it into a works-based salvation. They took the picture and made the picture the, the God. They took the picture, they, they took the shadow. You understand, for every shadow there is something that casts it. And the thing that casts it is what's important, not the shadow. The shadow does nothing but point to that which is standing and that which is truly there. But how often do we do the same thing? How often do we fail to see the God behind the picture and make the picture the God? We uh, just got out of a sermon series entitled Generous. And it was all about how do we handle God's money God's way. And you understand, I can find a couple parallels here. I don't want to stretch this too far. But in, in one sense, the fact that God allows us to have resources and money is kind of an illustration for us. He is allowing us to join with him to be like him in being generous. But we take this shadow, we take this picture called money and possessions and we make it our God. And we forget that it is only a means to glorify God. How often do we do it? We are no different than the Hebrews. Before we climb up on our horse and look down on the Jews of the Old Testament, let's take a honest self-inventory. The second thing that I would like to point out is in verse 11, if you will glance down. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. You know, uh, this reminds me of a, um, of a team building exercise I did in high school. I imagine team building exercises actually do accomplish good, but I don't like them very much because, you know, they just seem kind of pointless. You know, you have to like walk across the low ropes and everybody's holding hands and it, I just, I I don't, you know, really get the point of a lot of it. But this one in particular, apparently someone had way too much time on their hands to make this one up. You ever seen those, I know you have, the big uh, um, plastic barrels, the drums, they use them for like trash cans at ball fields a lot, you know, the big plastic drums. Well, somebody had decided, hey, that would make a good team building exercise. Let's drill a bunch of holes in it, put it in the middle of a creek, and tell the people that they've got to fill it up while p- trying to plug all the holes. The, uh, the sadistic thing about it was that they made way too many holes, uh, and it makes guys like me frustrated because, you know, I want to get the job done. You know, so you can imagine about 10 high schoolers, you know, about that deep in water in the middle of this creek trying to plug up these holes with sticks, with their hands, with their face, you know, doing whatever it takes. One guy's pouring water in and we could never get it to overflow. It wasn't going to happen. I I think it's physically impossible. 
wasn't going to happen. Kind of reminds me of, of these priests in the Old Testament. They never could do enough. They, they couldn't do enough. It didn't matter how many animals they sacrificed. It didn't matter how many days they woke up, went to the temple, sacrificed animals. It didn't do any good for sin. They never could get the barrel full. Um, <laughs> provided a picture for us to show us that we don't even have the means even when given a system like the law, we still can't do it. Imagine trying to find purpose in that job. You know, a lot of people enjoy their job and they get up every day and go to work because they find purpose in their job. You know, maybe you're in some kind of service industry, your healthcare industry, something where because of you, the lives of someone else is, is made better. And you find purpose in that. And, and because of that reason, you can go to work every day and, and enjoy your job. And it's not just a paycheck. You know, perhaps you're a, a teacher or something and you know that you're investing in the lives. Uh, per, perhaps you, uh, you, you find your purpose in being able to provide food uh, for your family's table. And that is why you wake Wake up every morning and find purpose in your work and find purpose in your job. Imagine being a priest. Trying to tell yourself, well, I got to get up and go sacrifice the animals today. Why am I doing that again? Oh, yeah, it shows a picture, but they're going to misrepresent the picture. But I still got to do it. And they were obedient. I give them that. But unfortunately, many people misinterpreted this and made the shadow their God. This, the team building exercise I, I told you about also kind of reminds me of, and, and this uh, talking about the priest kind of reminds me of, of something that Leon Morris said, the, uh, the late Australian uh, theologian. He said this, yet despite all their activity, priests cannot deal with the basic problem, that of removing sin. The paid holy men couldn't take care of it. The priest couldn't take care of sin. And I, and I would contend to you that you can't come to me or to your pastor or anyone else, make some kind of confession to some kind of church official or say enough Hail Marys. It's not going to do any good. But I can tell you this, that it is finished. I can tell you this, that our priest, uh, or the, the priest of the Old Testament, their priest sacrificed daily. Their priest sacrificed continually. Their priest stood up all day. Their priest could not take away sins. But our priest is perfect. Jesus Christ. Our priest made one sacrifice. Why? Because it is finished. There is no need to make any more sacrifices. Because mine, Jesus says, is good enough. He made one sacrifice and he did not stand daily. He sat down at the right hand of the Father because it is finished. There is no more need. So perhaps you are Andy. I hope that speaks to you. Our hearts should leap with joy 
the reading of verse 12. I'm going to read verse 11 for context so that you can see the, the contrast between the priests of the Hebrew Old Testament and, and our priest, Jesus Christ. Read along with me, verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he did not stand. And the scripture says he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Why? Uh, verse 14, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. After saying, and here's where the implications for us come in. Verse 16. This is, the, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Maybe you are, Andy. And maybe you do think that. I'm sorry, Amy. Was it Amy? Andy and Amy. Ashley. Okay, I knew they were both A's. Maybe you are, Ashley. Maybe you think that somehow you can one day do enough. The author of Hebrews thinks differently. Jesus Christ made one sacrifice. But on the other side of that coin, maybe you're Andy. And you think that your works have nothing to do with your salvation. While it is true that you can't work for your salvation, it is equally true that you must work out your salvation. Read along with me. I want to read uh, verses 15 and on. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. You understand that when the God of the universe writes his laws on your hearts and on your minds, it is awfully hard to distance yourself from that. They, if you are a believer, his laws are on your hearts. They are on your minds. They are never far from you. You are constrained to obey. Do we make mistakes? Absolutely. But your disposition now has been changed. You have a new nature. His laws are on your hearts. They are on your inmost being. They are at the core of who you are and they are all in your mind. They are never far from your wandering thoughts. As we press on. Then he adds, verse 17, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. What a privilege. But we understand that this privilege is not without responsibility. Verse 18, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering of sin. And verse 19, this is, this is key. Catch this. He says, therefore, comma. Whenever you hear somebody in the Bible say, therefore, nine times out of ten, what they're doing is they're making a turn from teaching theology or some kind of doctrine or making some kind of statement and making a turn to the practical. Therefore, because of this, therefore, do this. This uh, this this 
treatise that I have that I have given you this morning. We can I suppose we could close our Bibles and uh, pray and, and leave here and, and you know, have a, a good rest of the Sunday afternoon saying, you know, it is finished. It is finished. But the fact that it is finished has very, very important implications for us. We have a responsibility because it is finished. And, you know, for the one who really understands that it is finished, it is not so much of a responsibility as it is a joy. He went to the cross. He paid your sin. Are his commandments really heavy? Are his commandments really burdensome? I would say not for the believer. Verses 21 and 22 demonstrate to us how we have access to God through Christ. But before we get there, let's continue in 19. Therefore, he makes the turn. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by what? By the blood of Jesus, not by our good works, not by the blood of any animals that were sacrificed. But we have confidence to enter the holy place. We have confidence to go to Christ or to go to God because of the work of Christ, because of his blood. Uh, verse 20, by the new and living way that he opened for us. Through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. Verse 21. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, Allah, Jesus, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed pure with water. He says, let us draw near. We have this responsibility that once we have been given Christ, we have this responsibility and this joy to draw near. Why would we not pray? Why would we neglect to spend time with God? Oh, friend, if you knew just how much it took to make that possible... Perhaps it would change the way you live. Therefore, brothers, since we have this confidence, let us draw near. Would you draw near? Verse 23, another let us, which is in the, in the Greek it's a it's called a hortatory subjunctive. It means it's a, it's a call to do something. It's let us. We are joining in this together. He says, let us draw near with a true heart. But in verse 23, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. We now have what it takes to not waver. We now have what it takes because uh, regardless of, of what misconceptions we may have, we are not hanging on to God for dear life. He is hanging on to us. But still, let us draw near. Let us honor and glorify Christ. Because he has made a way and because it is finished. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. There are certain responsibilities of the one for whom it has been made complete. We are encouraged. We are actually commanded to meet together. 
we are encouraged to come together as one. And it is not simply enough to just be at peace with one another. No, the author of Hebrews says, let us encourage one another. Let us spur one another on with love and good deeds. Because we have a responsibility to one another. There is one sense in which your sanctification somehow depends on me. And there is one sense in which your sanctification somehow depends on you. Because we have a responsibility to one another. And we take joy in this because it is finished. We take joy in this not because Christ lived his 33 years. Didn't really enjoy it that much because he was among sinners and he really didn't fit in. It is not finished because Christ finally died and he was released from his body of pain after being scourged and crucified. It is finished because the work of God in Christ that was foretold uh, since um, Genesis was made complete. It's prophesied and finished. There is nothing more for us to do. Oh, but there is so much more for us to do. Do you see it? So we finish. I'm going to read on just for a moment. Let's pick back up in, in verse 25. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. It's awful hard to encourage one another when you're not meeting together. But encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. These words will change you, and I pray by the Spirit of God, that they will sink deeply within you. And I have one last thing to say, and that is to remind you of the call that this passage brings us. You, you realize the author of Hebrews encourages us not to, not to continue sinning deliberately, not to forsake the meeting together, but he says to encourage one another. And what we can the umbrella that we can put all of this under is holiness. You understand that the call is the same today as it was in Genesis chapter 2 and in Genesis chapter 3. The call today is the same as it was in the Old Testament prophets in the days of the exile. When they came back from the exile in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John through John's uh, through uh, Paul's epistles. The call is the same. And that call is to holiness. It has not changed. And I have an encouragement for you. You can be holy. Why? Because it is finished. It has been done. Would you surrender to Christ? Are you Andy? It is finished. Are you... Ashley, I understand it is finished. Are you struggling with guilt that you can't shake? Oh, it is finished. 
Have you not come to Christ yet? Have you run from Him? He is pursuing you. It is finished. Would you pray with me? Oh, and God, what a privilege. What a joy it is that we can now, because of your sacrifice and because of your work on the cross, we now have the ability to fulfill your commands. The law in the Old Testament was great, but we just didn't have the power to do it. But God, now we do. We have your Holy Spirit living in us, equipping us. And I pray that we would not forsake his offer to give us new life. I pray that we would not forsake to live in harmony with one another. We would not forsake his offer to encourage one another. I pray, God, that we would see that we have a responsibility to one another. And I pray, God, that you, by your word, would change our hearts, Father, because there is no other means. There is no other means to change sinners than your son and his work. And we rejoice, God, that your work is finished.